You know, I love the line in that uh, song that we just sang about how Jesus Christ came to bring peace on earth. Indeed, he did come to uh, bring peace, and it's a reminder, you know, as we look around um, us, I mentioned that uh, the holiday season is in full gear. Um, people are doing their Christmas shopping, and it's um, actually quite tragic when we think about what um, this season has really kind of devolved into. Um, the, the season is much more about gifts and about commerce and about money. Um, after Thanksgiving, we have Black Friday, and you know, you've heard some of the stories in the past of even some of the violence that happens at some of these stores as people are trying to rush in um, getting the best deals. And um, online retailers like Amazon um, make a killing during this season as people go online to buy gifts, and we are often just preoccupied uh, with that alone. And of course, uh, we have um, many of us as believers that always want to bring forth what the reason for the season is. You know, we want to use that opportunity to bring their attention to Jesus Christ. And obviously, we have many of the stories that are very um, popular to share around this time of the year of Jesus Christ in the manger and the shepherds coming to Jesus Christ um, and, and those kinds of stories that we find um, early in the Gospels. But even that, uh, what often gets lost in that is that Jesus Christ came, and he certainly came for us, but he came to die. Um, one of my favorite songs, and really my wife's favorite song, um, she just shared it on Facebook recently. It's called the, um, the Beginning of the End, right? The End of the Beginning or the Beginning of the End is one of those two. <laughs> but, uh, but the premise of the song, if you listen to the lyrics, and the lyrics are wonderful, it's about this Christian who's evangelizing someone else who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, he goes through the Gospels and, and shares, the, shares about the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he goes on to say, but the death of Jesus Christ was not the end. No, indeed, that was not the end. In fact, when we look through the New Testament, we find that following the Gospels, we have the book of Acts. And that's where the church was actually, that's when the church actually began from the day of Pentecost after Jesus Christ's ascension up into heaven. And I'm reminded that Jesus Christ, after the great confession from Peter that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus told Peter that on this rock I will build my church. You know, on the rock of that confession, um, he is going to build his church. So as we think about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, certainly there's nothing wrong with reading the stories about baby Jesus in, in a manger, um, but certainly remember that there was a purpose to that, that he came to die. And when he came to die, he came to die for his church. And, and so his, his goal in coming to die for us was to establish his church, and that's what we have as a testimony throughout the book of Acts and through the life of the disciples that followed Jesus Christ and all the letters that we have written. And so this morning, as we go back into the book of Ephesians, we're finally going to be starting the second half of Ephesians. The first half of Ephesians, the first three chapters, have been all focused upon theology. It's been focused upon our understanding of, of the, God's plan of redemption and all the blessings that has come forth from that, all that he accomplished through that, and the various ways that we have been blessed uh, from heaven as a result of that. Um, but as we get into the last three chapters, we're going to start chapter 4, and chapter 4 really starts off with the central commandment in all of the book of Ephesians. And we're going to see that this very much ties into the reason for the season, because if you talk about the reason for the season— which is Jesus Christ, you must also talk about what he came to establish. He died and he came to establish the church, that the church would be a testimony of him and that we would be united in that testimony. And so for this morning's sermon, the title, as you can see from your bulletin, is The Unity That Christ Came to Establish. Now, this is going to be part one. So I have there Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. What we're going to do this morning, we'll cover the first three verses um, and, uh, and then we'll cover the verses four through uh, six uh, next week. But my purpose this morning is for us to examine the godly characteristics required for Christians to preserve the unity of the spirit within the body of Christ. Because if Christ came to establish unity amongst the church, then we ought to find out what is required for us to preserve it. Simply coming to church on Sunday, simply just saying to people that we are Christians is not the point of our lives, and it's not what helps preserve unity within the church. Um, and as we take a look at this passage this morning, I also want to 
help you understand that this passage is really part of a a longer section of Ephesians that starts in chapter 4, verse 1, but stretches all the way to verse 16. So we're going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 16 all together because it's really one complete thought from the Apostle Paul. This is all centered around unity and the result of unity. And then we'll go on and just study the first three verses. So as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, it'll be up here on the slide. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, you can look for it on the slide or you can go ahead and just open up uh, your Bible. Um, It'll come eventually, I'm sure. Uh, But starting in verse one, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself, who also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ." As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That is the entire section that uh, we'll eventually be looking at uh, as part of over the next few weeks. But we're going to take a look, as I said, we're going to focus on the first three verses. And I'm going to break up this morning's uh, message into three parts. Uh, the three, into three parts. And, and really, these are the, the three parts that, um, that Paul is going to walk us through in terms of helping us to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And, and the first part is the call to walk worthy. The call to walk worthy, which is right here in verse 1. So when we go back to verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, we see at the very start of verse 1, it says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, when he starts off with the word therefore, we understand our grammar and we understand that therefore implies he's building off of something that he has already said. And it's very clear when we understand how Paul arranged this letter. The first half of the letter, as I mentioned, he is sharing all the blessings of God's plan of redemption, all the blessings that came with God's salvation over us. And now he's starting the section of the letter where he is now going to issue commandments to us. He's going to issue his his imperatives to us for us to be able to walk. And the primary commandment, the central commandment is right here in verse one. And so when he says, therefore, he's basically pointing back to the first three chapters. Everything that he has already mentioned in the first three chapters now leads to this central commandment in the book of Ephesians. Having understand all those blessings, he says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord. Now, when he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, he is putting extra emphasis upon what he is about to say. It's interesting in in the Greek, you know, in the English, we have subject and we have verbs. In the Greek, often the subject is not mentioned. It's implied from the verb itself. But in this case, the Greek actually has the subject listed in the Greek to emphasize I, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord. And we know that as he's identifying himself as the prisoner of the Lord, that he is in Rome awaiting his time before Caesar. He is writing this from prison. He had already mentioned this before in chapter three, verse one. 
But what's interesting is in chapter 3, verse 1, he identified himself as the prisoner of the Lord. And technically here in the Greek, he actually identifies himself as the prisoner in the Lord. Though it's translated of the Lord, it's actually in the Lord, the prisoner in the Lord. And what he's doing is he's reminding the Ephesians that he is um, in prison, but he is in prison while also being in the Lord. This is emphasizing his unity with Christ. This is emphasizing the truth that we should all embrace, that we are in union with our Lord Jesus Christ. So he is not just a prisoner, but he is a prisoner in the Lord. This is recognizing God's sovereignty over his situation, but also recognizing the union that he has with his Lord. And then he goes on to say, I implore you. Now, this this word implore, it's not a word we use very often um, in the English. Um, When I looked up the English definition of the word implore, it says this means to beg earnestly or or desperately for someone to do something. Um, This Greek word for uh, implore can be translated in a number of really in a number of different ways. Um, It can be translated as exhort or comfort or encourage. Um, So there's a number of ways that you can translate this. But really, the key to understand here is that we know that Paul is emphasizing this. That uh, whether he is giving a strong exhortation or whether he is pleading for them, he wants them to be able to follow this for the sake of all that he has shared, all the realities that he has shared in the first three chapters. I implore you. And what, it is, what is it that Paul implores the Ephesians to do? Well, it's to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, we understand that when Paul says walk, He's not literally talking about just simply taking a walk around the block. When he says walk, he's talking about the way we live, the way we conduct ourselves. In fact, if you even look back at chapter 2, I don't have it up on the slide, but if you were to look back at chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 2, talks about how we once walked after the prince of the power of the air and after the course of this world. And then verse 10 goes on to say that we are the workmanship of God and God created good works beforehand so that we would walk in them. So even in chapter 2, when you look at verses 2 and 10, there's a clear indication of how we once walked and how we are now to walk. And so here, the central commandment, it should be no surprise that it is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. And the Greek tense for walk indicates that this is something that you did not do before. I mean, we understand that from context, but even grammatically, it helps us understand that this is something you did not do before. But as a Christian, you are to do this now and onto the future until you are called up into heaven in the presence of God. So there's a clear focus on walking from this central commandment and it's a clear focus on how we are to walk throughout the rest of the last three chapters of this book. We'll see that commandment walk repeated over and over again. But when he says walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, this idea of walking in a manner worthy, it's the idea of making something equivalent. It's making something equal. In other words, for us, After Paul has shared all the beautiful truths, all the inward realities that come to us through the Spirit, all the spiritual blessings that we have from heaven, he wants us to be sure that our outward reality matches the inward reality. That what people see from us from the outside matches the reality of what God has made true for us on the inside. We have a regenerated heart. We are together with Christ in heaven. We have guarantee of inheritance in the future with Christ. We have so many spiritual blessings and realities that are true for us in the spirit that we know that will come to fruition in the future. But Paul wants to make sure that what people see from the outside is something that matches that reality on the inside. That we are walking in a manner that is worthy, that is is equal to that calling by which we have been called. Now, when we talk about that calling... The word calling actually shows up in chapter 1, verse 18, as well as chapter 4, verse 4. Um, It shows up in both of those um, those chapters, and, and we see in both of those cases, it's the hope of your calling. It's the hope of God's calling over you. And when you think back to Ephesians 1 to 3, the calling has been described from the very beginning when Paul mentioned the fact that he chose you before the foundation of the world. That's chapter 1, verse 4. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He predestined you to adoption as sons. That's verse 5. And so really the entire chapter talks about this calling of God, which is the calling of you to salvation. He called you to salvation. 
And you may even remember chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, that talked about how we were dead in our trespasses and sin. But verse 4 talks about, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. So this calling is a very clear pointer to our salvation. And when he says the, the calling with which you have been called, that idea of that which you have been called, it's literally called out. So it's the calling with which you have been called out. You have been called out. And in fact, the word for church um, in the Greek is ekklesia. And literally, literally, if you were to interpret that literally in the Greek, it's the called out ones. We're the called out ones. Now, that might sound strange because haven't we been called into a church? Why is it saying we're called out? Well, we're called out of the world. We are called out of the world. And so this is the calling with which you have been called. And this has clear implications with, with, with regards to the church. And we are to walk in a manner that is worthy of that calling. Now, that's a high calling. Because the greatest gift that we can receive in this lifetime is the promise of salvation. Right? I mean, any kind of gift you get from someone, you, you know, you, you, you feel a debt of gratitude towards that person. And you, you, you feel this sense of you, you want that person um, not to regret having given you such a gift. You want to be able to show that person gratitude. But in this case, we're talking about the absolute greatest gift anyone can imagine. And so in a sense, Paul is telling us to do something that is impossible for us. We could never live up to the calling by which we have been called. But this is what we strive for. And this is what's granted to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. You may remember in the first three chapters, the power of God had been emphasized throughout those first three chapters in order to enable us to do what we could not normally do ourselves. And as we look at um, these verses up on the screen, um, Philippians 1.27, these are some similar commands from Paul in other letters with regards to how we conduct ourselves. Philippians 1.27, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Do you see the emphasis upon unity there? In fact, it's very much the case that whenever Paul talks about walking worthy, the first thing that he emphasizes is unity within the church. And in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he says, So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so the implication here, what I'm trying to share here, the implication is that being a Christian comes with responsibility. Amen. Being a Christian comes with an expectation. Being a Christian means that all these wonderful realities should fill our hearts up with so much gratitude and praise for our Lord Jesus Christ that this should be just a logical extension of our salvation. This should be just the natural response to it, that we want to serve him, that we want to glorify him, that we want to exalt him. And Paul here is saying this is how you do it. You walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Unfortunately, there are many churches out there today, there are many people that say that once you just make the verbal profession of Jesus Christ, however you live is not important. You've made the verbal profession, so you are absolutely saved. But Paul here, his emphasis is very clear. No, you have been saved for a purpose. Ephesians 2.10 said you were saved in order that you would walk in the good works which God had created beforehand that you would walk in. And so the implication is that we have a responsibility. There is an expectation. There should be a, an outflow of response from us as a result of these wondrous truths. And that brings us to the second part of this morning's message. The first was the call to walk worthy. The second is the manner of walking worthy. The manner of walking worthy. So if Paul calls us to walk worthy, we want to be able to know, okay, yes, we want to walk worthy of the call by which we have been called. But what does that mean? What does that look like? What do we do? And that is the second section here, the manner of walking worthy. As we continue on in verse 2. Verse 2, he says this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now I'm going to warn you, these are, these are going to be challenging exhortations to us when we really take a look at what these words mean and how they apply to us. 
You see, the first thing he says is with all humility, with all humility. And this word for humility, I think we have an understanding. This is uh, we think of humility as being the opposite of pride. I think most of us understand that. And, and we recognize humility when we see it. We understand that humility is treating others as more important uh, than ourselves. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that this idea of humility had not really been considered a virtue prior to New Testament times. You see, being humbled was something that was forced upon you. You know, in fact, if you read through the Old Testament, um, often uh, the idea of being humbled is the idea that uh, we are humbled by God himself. That, that we are in submission to him. It often came with the idea of submission. Um, most of the time when it comes up in the Old Testament, it is between man and God. Sometimes it comes up between man and man. It's usually because one person owes some sort of debt of gratitude to or towards another. Um, something is owed. Something has been taken. Something um, has to be repaid. And so you're humbled. You're brought low. That's the idea that you're being brought low. Um, you're being brought into submission for, to, to the other person. And it's very much circumstantial. And so this kind of circumstance is not considered a virtue because you're being put under someone else. But in this case, what Paul is mentioning to us is that he wants us to be characterized by humility towards one another. And so it's very interesting, really starting from the New Testament and really from the teaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ even told us to love one another. He told us to love one another. And even in the upper room, you remember the example of them entering the upper room. And what did he do as soon as they walked into the upper room? He washed their feet. And remember, some of the disciples didn't even want Jesus to do that because they recognized that was supposed to be the role of the most lowliest servant in the house to do that. But Jesus was giving us an example that we are to humble ourselves before each other in serving each other, in loving one another. So Paul is commanding this with regards to each other. It's not simply that we are to humble ourselves before God. That is very much true. That's true throughout the scriptures. But here he's telling us to humble ourselves with each other. So humility is a virtue with all humility. But he doesn't just say with all humility. He also says with gentleness. But let's take a look at Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. And think about humility a little bit more. This is a great passage as it comes to um, humility. Um, Paul goes into greater detail in his letter to the Philippians. And remember, when he wrote Philippians, he was also in prison. In prison in Rome, we know that he wrote the letter of Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, as well as Philemon. But he writes this to the Philippians. And we see very much this idea of humility here. Verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. So we see here humility is regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Verse 4, Do not merely look at your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. And then verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So at this point, as he is telling us to be humble to one another, to, to, to exercise humility towards one another, he gives us the ultimate example in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then starting in verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the reason why Paul shares this magnificent truth about our Lord Jesus Christ is not simply to teach us about Jesus Christ, but to use him as an example for us with regards to humility. We are to regard each other as more important than ourselves. We're not simply just to look out for our own interests, but also the interests of others. And in the example of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, his interest for us as the church was to the degree that he was willing to die and go to the cross for us. And that is an amazing, amazing truth that we should be eternally thankful for. And then a couple of more verses to show to you. First um, Peter 5, 5. Peter contrasts humility with, uh, against pride. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then later on in Ephesians 5.21, we have this similar idea. Humility doesn't show up, but the idea is there when he says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. 
be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So even here in the letter of Ephesians, Paul will go on to talk about the importance of us being subject to one another. But we're not only told to do this with all humility, but also gentleness. So as we look back again at um, Ephesians 4.2, it says, with all humility and gentleness. Now, this word for gentleness, this really flows out of humility. Um, it could also be translated meekness, meekness. I mean, it's not a word that we use very often, but there is a common misconception. Because often people will think of gentleness and meekness as being equivalent to weakness. Okay, gentleness is not weakness. In fact, um, if we look at some examples, starting in Matthew 21, 5, this is the triumphal entry of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the triumphal entry of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see there, it says that, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. I apologize, I noticed the sound is kind of going in and out, so I'll try to speak loud enough so that everyone can hear if it's not coming out. But here in Matthew 21, 5, we see the identification, identification of Jesus Christ as king. And the idea of king is that he has sovereign authority. But it says here he is gentle. He's even mounted on a donkey, which is a very humble animal, right? I mean, you don't think of royalty coming in on a donkey. You know, you think of them coming in on chariots, coming in on stallions, not on a donkey. But here he's saying he is gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He's coming in a way that is not exercising that authority. And then looking at Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And once again, we see that Jesus Christ, though he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the King, he establishes himself as being both gentle and humble in heart. We want to be able to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Jesus Christ is emphasizing here is that he's not exercising our authority, his authority over us, but rather he is giving us rest for those who need it. He is giving us what we need and not simply just exercising his authority over us. And then Paul, likewise, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, Paul says this, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. Paul is basically saying that, yeah, I write these letters and they're very strong. They're very forthright. They can be very blunt about confronting you in your sin. But you know when I'm with you how I am. And Paul very much, though he had the authority of an apostle, you will see Paul very much talk about how he doesn't want to exercise that authority. He would rather appeal to you just, just based upon your will, try to appeal to you, sometimes even, even beg and plead with you to do what is right. And so the idea of meekness, the idea of meekness is not weakness. It's that we have a certain authority and strength, but we're choosing to forego it in order to help someone. You know, it's this idea when you're at the workplace. I have worked with many different bosses in many different uh, locations with many different teams. And I know the best bosses I've ever worked with were the ones that didn't simply bark out orders or, you know, um, get on your case whenever a mistake was made. But it was someone who would come alongside with you and, and help you get through that. Would work with you and address you as, as, a, as a colleague rather than just exercise his or her authority over you. And so that's the idea of meekness is that you have, you have the ability to do more, to, to be bolder, to be more blunt, but you're choosing to be gentle. Because if we're being honest, we know that in cases where we're wrong, in cases where we need correction, it's a lot easier to take correction from someone who's gentle with us than someone who's coming in a tone of rebuke and simply trying to exercise authority over us. <clears throat> so here, Paul, when he's saying with all humility and gentleness, he is talking about how we are to be towards one another. Not only regarding one another as more important than ourselves, but also having a gentleness in how we deal with each other having a gentleness that we're not simply rebuking people simply because they've done something wrong. We're not, uh, you know, we're not putting them down because they don't live up to a certain standard, but we are being gentle. We are seeking to edify them. We're seeking to build them up. 
And it's not just with all humility and gentleness. As we go on in verse 2. Oh, actually, I have a few additional examples of, um, of this being gentle. You can just write this down. I don't have this on the slide. But a few additional examples. Galatians 6, verse 1. That's about restoring a sinning brother in a spirit of gentleness. That's Galatians 6, 1. 1 Timothy 6, 11, Paul talks about gentleness as something to be pursued. That's 1 Timothy 6, 11. 1 Peter 3, verse 4, uh, wives, especially wives of unbelieving husbands, um, they are commended to have the imperishable quality of a gentle spirit. That's 1 Peter 3, verse 4. And then one more, Galatians 5, 23, that is when Paul mentions that gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. Gentleness is one of the fruit of the Spirit. But we're not only called to walk with all humility and gentleness, but also, in verse 2, with patience. With patience. Now, this word patience, we understand this. That, that means not to react quickly. You know, it means to be slow to respond, especially if we're upset or we're displeased about something that has happened. And in the Old Testament, this is, often, uh, this is often translated as long-suffering. God is described as being long-suffering over us as sinners, being long-suffering, um, desiring for us to be saved. Um, patience is also mentioned as one of the fruits of the Spirit, um, Galatians 5.22. Um, but let me show some verses here to give you some examples of, of this patience. Starting in Exodus uh, 34, verse 6. Exodus 34, verse 6, the context of this, this is Moses. Moses wants to see the glory of God. And you remember, God took Moses up into the mountain, put him into a cleft of the rock, and then had his glory pass right before Moses before making this statement in Exodus 34, verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, that's the word right there, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And then, of course, if you go to any wedding, you always see 1 Corinthians or you always hear 1 Corinthians being recited. And the next verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, we know that love is many things, but notice the very first attribute of love. What is it? Love is patient. Love is patient. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. So love is first and foremost patient. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 14. And this is a good verse for us as we consider how to, um, how to counsel and, and deal with our fellow brothers and sisters depending upon what season they're going through, depending upon what trials they're going through, whatever spiritual struggles they might be going through. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, Paul says this, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. The idea here is that you take a different approach with different people depending on what kind of season they're going through. You may need to be bold with some folks. You may need to be more encouraging with other folks. You may simply need to provide help to other folks who are in a position of being weak. But the very last statement he says is to be patient with who? Everyone. Be patient with everyone. Now, what that means for us in terms of being patient is that we don't, we don't just get upset and angry when people don't live up to our standards. You know, we, we show patience when, when, when people have made mistakes, when they don't live up to maybe promises that they have made, when they're struggling with certain sins. In fact, this idea of patience um, is further extended in verse 2 when it says also showing tolerance for one another in love. Showing tolerance for one another in love. Now, this idea of showing tolerance, it really kind of flows out of, out of being patient. Uh, showing tolerance is bearing with one another. It's translated as bearing with one another in the ESV and the New King James and NIV. And uh, NLT, it's translated as making allowance for each other's faults. I kind of like that, making allowance for each other's faults. And the idea is showing mutual forbearance. It's, it's having the patience to, to endure another person's weaknesses or failures. Weaknesses or failures. And then I love how at the end of verse 2, it ends, ends up by saying that you are to show tolerance for one another in what? Love. And guess what? 
If you have ever done a word study of the word love, you know that the Greek has many ways of many different words they can use for the word love. This is here agape love. It's the idea that we are to show agape love to each other. It's an unconditional love towards each other that seeks the highest good for each other. So when it says here we are to show tolerance for one another in love, that we are to be patient and to show tolerance for one another in love, it's that we are driven by this agape love. And that agape love not only has us being humble and gentle, but that we are patient with one another. Now, this is going to be very critical. This is very important because I know that within any church, with any, any body of people that gather together, there are grudges being held between people. There are grudges being held between brothers and sisters in Christ. And consider the hypocrisy that we demonstrate in these situations because we were not worthy of any kind of forgiveness from God. We were not worthy of God's patience with us. We were not worthy of the gentleness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were not worthy of the patience and the long-suffering that Jesus Christ and God suffered with us as we continued to disobey. But because of God's love, he sent his son into the world that he may die for us anyway. Jesus Christ died for the church. He died for each one of us, despite the fact that that we were not perfect and we still are not perfect. Amen? You know, it's interesting to me that in our human nature, and you may be able to relate to this, but I know in my heart, I don't want anyone to expect perfection from me because I know that I am human. I'm still a sinner. And yet in the hypocrisy of my own heart, sometimes I expect perfection out of other people. Can you relate to that? Because when we refuse to forgive someone, when we refuse to be patient with their failures and their shortcomings, We're essentially holding a standard to them that God did not even hold to you when he saved you. And so as we follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, we want to be able to extend gentleness, humility, patience, this kind of forbearance, being willing to to be long-suffering with one another and being, being willing to do it out of agape love. And love, by the way, that is yet another fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? So we have a number of fruits of the Spirit being mentioned here, right here in verse 2. And so as we continue, as we consider verse 2 here, just consider how you've been treating one another. Consider not only, you know, don't pat yourself on the back just because you're showing up here on Sundays. Don't pat yourself on the back just because you're listening to the sermons and you're learning more and more about Scripture. Certainly you need to do that. That's very important. But apply that. I mean, this book of Ephesians is God's vision for the church. And God's vision for the church was for us to demonstrate the love for one another that God demonstrated towards us. And it should be a wonderful love when it is witnessed, when it is seen. And now we move from section two to section three. The first section was the call to walk worthy, and then we just covered the manner of walking worthy. The final section is the focus of walking worthy. The focus of walking worthy. So we have all these characteristics that are being commended to us. But what is our focus? What is our priority? What is it we're trying to achieve? When we look at verse 3, verse 3 makes it very clear what our priority is. Verse 3 says being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now this idea of being diligent, the NIV translates this as making every effort the ESV translates this as being eager, eager to do something. The New King James says endeavoring. So it's, it's a word that can be translated in multiple different ways. But the idea of being diligent, I mean, I do like the English word because we understand diligence is to, to work hard at something, right? But it's not simply just to work hard in the Greek. This is sparing no effort, making every effort in order to accomplish this. And just to take a look at some sample verses we would recognize 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15. In fact, I think this is the theme verse for Awana, if I'm not mistaken. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent, be diligent to do what? To present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So we see there in that verse, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. And the idea is that you want to be able to handle the word of God accurately. You want to be able to rightly divide the truth. 
but it takes diligence. It takes hard work. It takes all of your efforts. And then 2 Peter 1.15, 2 Peter 1.15, Peter says, And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter is telling the church that he is writing to that I will continue making every effort to remind you of the truths of God so that even after I am gone, even after I am executed, you will be able to remember these things. And then finally, 2 Peter 3.14 2 Peter 3, 14, Peter says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. That's Peter talking about our walk. Peter talking about how we are to live. And he is saying with regards to our walk to be diligent to be found by him, by God, in peace, spotless and blameless. That's very much complementary to what Paul has been teaching in the book of Ephesians. So we are to to be diligent, but to be diligent in what? It's to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And so we have to now look at the word preserve. We understand preserve. It's to maintain something. We understand that, especially with foods, right? The word preservatives, the idea of preservatives is that you maintain that food longer before it spoils on you. Um, But this idea of preserve can also be translated as keep. It's to guard something, it's to protect something. In fact, the New King James and the, New, uh, the NLT and NIV translate this as keep. The ESV translates this as maintain. So it's, it can be preserve, it can be keep, it can be maintain. And just to share some additional verses with you in this regard, 2 Timothy 4, 7. 2 Timothy 4, 7. And um, I have underlined that the word that's being used there. 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I mean, I think all of us at the end of our lives would like to be able to say this. Amen. We want to be able to fight the good fight. We want to be able to finish the course. We want to say that we have kept the faith. So it's the idea of keeping. It's, it's the idea of preserving. Revelation sixteen fifteen. Revelation sixteen fifteen. Behold, I am coming like a thief. This is the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. Now he says keeps his clothes. He doesn't mean literally. He goes on to say so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. The idea of keeping his clothes is to maintain your walk. The idea is to maintain your holiness. You know, don't give in to the deeds of darkness. So keep your clothes. Maintain that walk. And then in Jude 6, we see this word showing up twice, talking about the angels, talking about uh, the, the fallen angels. Jude chapter, well, Jude verse 6 reads, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept, this is God, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So this idea of keep, we, we, see, we see various ways as being used, and I think you can see that keeping is, is, to, is to either guard or protect or to hold for a certain amount of time, perhaps. Um, but here we are to keep or to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And the idea here that we are to preserve or to keep the unity of the Spirit, it's this idea that we already have it. It's not something that we need to achieve ourselves. That's been achieved for us. In fact, the idea that it's called the unity of the Spirit is to emphasize the fact that it's been accomplished by the Holy Spirit of God. How was it accomplished by the Holy Spirit of God? Well, you may remember back in chapter 2, and we'll read that in a moment, but chapter 2 talked about how the Holy Spirit really made, into, made us into one new man. Remember talking about Jews and Gentiles and the division that existed before them. But through the work of Christ and in the Holy Spirit, we became one glorious new man in Christ. That is the unity of the Spirit, is a unity that is produced by the Spirit and not by us as men. And then finally, in the bond of peace, when it says in the bond of peace... This idea of bond, that word for bond, it uh, comes from the same root as prisoner. So when Paul says, I am a prisoner of the Lord, it's the same root being used here for bond. Because being a prisoner, you're, you're, you're bounded by chains. That's the, the idea of being a prisoner. Uh, this conveys the idea of binding. But in this case, it is, it is saying that this unity, this unity of the Spirit is bound together by peace. By peace. And we're going to see that also in Ephesians 2. So let's take a look at um, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going back into Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And pay attention to the emphasis upon peace and, and the result of unity. Though the word unity is not mentioned, you'll see it very clearly emphasized. 
Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came to pre- and preach peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And through him, we both, this is talking about Jews and Gentiles, which means everyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. We both have our access in one spirit to the Father. There is a unity that was already achieved by Jesus Christ in his work on the cross. There is a unity that was achieved by the Holy Spirit when he baptized us into the body of Christ and made us one glorious new man in Christ. There is a unity and a peace that occurred as a result of that. Remember, Christ established peace between us and God as well as between people groups. And the job that we have now, the responsibility we have now is to preserve that peace. It's to preserve that peace preserve that unity in that bond of peace. So let's go ahead and reread these uh, three verses once again, what we have covered this morning. Starting in verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's no mistake that as Paul starts off this central commandment for us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which we have been called, that his first point of emphasis is right within the body of Christ. It's the unity that we are to be able to show between brothers and sisters, between all of us together. It is the love that we are to show to one another. It's the humility that we are to have with one another. It's regarding one another as more important than ourselves. It's gentleness. It's not not being harsh when harshness is not required. It's being gentle. It's being willing to come alongside people, being able to show them that love, to to be patient, to be long-suffering with people's weaknesses and their failures, recognizing that our salvation, our our sanctification now, now that we've been saved, our sanctification now is a long-term process from now to the time that Jesus Christ calls us into his presence. And so as we consider our principles for our application, principles of application, my question to you is, are you walking in a manner worthy of your calling? Are you walking in a manner worthy of your calling? And I'll break this out three ways. One is knowledge. One is knowledge. Because for you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, you have to be able to understand the riches of your calling. And if you don't know that, you need to go back and look again at chapters 1 through 3. And all the blessings that Paul has listed out for us with regards to us, our salvation. All that God has done in order to bless us. And uh, how we've been adopted into his household. How we have access to him in one spirit. How we have been made in, into one glorious new man. How we have an inheritance awaiting us in the future. I mean, there are so many blessings. And this all starts with you knowing, understanding. Because this calling by which you have been called, even in chapter 1, when Paul lifts up his first prayer, he prayed that you would know the hope of your calling. He prayed that you would know the hope of your calling. So it starts with knowledge and understanding. But the second, once you have that understanding, is godliness. Godliness. Do you exhibit the godly characteristics towards one another within the church? And those godly characteristics, just as a reminder, is humility. Are you humble with one another? Do you treat each other as more important than yourselves? Do you regard one another's interests and not simply just your own? There's gentleness, gentleness or meekness, that, that you're, you're not simply scolding people. You're not showing anger or frustration towards people, but rather that you are willing to help them in a spirit of kindness and gentleness. And then there's patience, this long-suffering, this ability to bear with one another's difficulties and failures and struggles. And then finally, there's the agape love. Do you exhibit this kind of love for one another that Christ exhibited for the church? And the last principle for application is priority. Priority. Are you making every effort to preserve the unity that Christ came to establish? 
because that is exactly what Paul is calling us to do. And so this is why this letter is so important to me. This is why, as I've come to this church, I started with the book of Ephesians, because I want to share with you what is God's vision for the church. What is God's vision for you and for me? There's a lot of wonderful ministries out in this community. I mean, this is a very Christian-oriented town and valley. There's a lot of uh, ministries, wonderful ministries, parachurch, parachurch organizations. You know, and I know there's a number of you that have a real zeal for evangelism, and that's wonderful. That is all part of the Great Commission. Those are things that we have to do. But do not neglect the priority that Paul emphasizes here upon building one another up, upon being there for one another, upon helping to support one another. Because I know just from the prayer requests that we lift up each and every week, we have a lot of people who are hurting. We have a lot of people who are struggling. And I know that there's a lot of prayer requests I don't even see that people have not identified. You guys know, I I know many of you are going through difficulties and trials. A lot of you are going through health difficulties. You've had unexpected diagnoses come up recently. You have uncertainties about the future. You know, make sure you know who those people are and rally around them. Pray for them. Build them up. Support them. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ... Let me tell you that you have no ability to be able to support this kind of unity that I'm describing. Even if you give all of yourself up to try to to be loving to one another, you have the spirit of disobedience within you. You see, what we learn from this letter, what we learn from God's plan is that those of us who do not have Christ, do not have the power of God working within us. We do not have the gift of the Holy Spirit until we accept Jesus Christ. This unity can only come by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit can only come by first you confessing your need for Jesus Christ. As we consider the reason for the season, Jesus Christ came as a baby. And certainly there's a lot of great stories about that. But certainly we also have to remember that he came as a baby in order that when he grew up, that he would die for us, that he would die for our sins. And if you say you do not need Jesus Christ, then you're saying that Jesus Christ did not need to come into the world. You're saying that you can be righteous before God, but unless you are perfect, and I can already tell you right now that you are not, unless you are perfect, you will not be able to stand in judgment before him. But the solution is very simple. If you understand your need for salvation, if you understand that you're a sinner before God, if you understand that you will not be able to escape judgment on your own, then you simply need to recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that as a response that you will confess him as Lord and Savior and follow after him. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And for this morning, I would urge you not to leave here without talking to myself or talking to one of us. In fact, uh, deacons and your wives, would you be able to stand up for just a moment? Deacons and your wives, please stand up. If you look around, if you're new, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you want to know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you feel God working in your heart, wanting to make this confession, please talk to me or talk to one of these men or women. They will be more than happy to sit down and talk to you and pray with you and to help you to understand what is next. All right, you may be seated. Thank you. And for the rest of us, make sure that you take seriously this calling by which we have been called. Recognize that we have not only received the ultimate gift in our Lord Jesus Christ, but we also have the ultimate opportunity and responsibility to be able to serve him and to be able to glorify him, first and foremost, by how we love one another within the body of Christ. Let's pray.